Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hello and welcome to another bumper episode of the monthly magazine style delicious podcast with me, Jilly Smith. This week, delicious magazine columnist Deborah Robertson tells us how to feed our dogs and TV chef James Martin tells us about his great British adventure. We tunnel under the streets of London to find the world's first sustainable farm and food historian Angela Clinton gives us the who knew on vinegar. And as Brexit looms, we hear from an Iranian refugee how food humanises the people behind the headlines. First, if you're wondering why Pancake Day is in March this year, Delicious Magazine editor Karen Barnes has the answer. It's all rooted in Easter and Lent, which is the period running up to Easter. And uh, uh, Shrove Tuesday, which is Pancake Day, traditionally happens on the Tuesday before Ash Wednesday and that is that marks six weeks before Easter and that period was traditionally a time of giving things up a time of I suppose taking a step back and thinking about maybe not overindulging in life and having a slightly more spiritual approach to life and uh so the idea was that you would get rid of all your rich things. So your eggs, your milk, your flour, your butter, you'd use it up and you would have pancakes. And then you would have your abstemious six weeks. And then once it was all over, Easter was the, the end of that period. So it's quite an interesting thing. But in our culture, I think it's just become something that we people love. Because who doesn't love a very simple pancake? But I think of it. How would you, how do you eat yours at home? I I only really associate them with kids, you know. And we used to make them all the time, all the kids did, and they just layer them up with masses of sugary stuff, which is not my bag. But but actually thinking about what you just said I really like a savoury pancake well yes because I was talking to our online team about it this morning and I know that pancakes are a big search item when when Shrove Tuesday comes around but apparently this year savoury pancakes are a big thing and we have got quite a lot of savoury recipes on deliciousmagazine.co.uk so and there are so many things you can do beyond squeezing lemon over and some sugar. You can mm. do the thicker, fluffier American-style pancakes and stack them up and have them for brunch if you want to. Or you can fill them with maybe some kind of stroganoff mixture or mm. a veggie curry and mm. layer them in a dish and put a cheesy sauce on top and bake them cream. in the oven. So suddenly they become dinner rather than a treat and a snack. Oh, so Instagrammable. <laughs> I think that's part of the reason people love them. Now, we're getting to know more of our regular columnists in the podcast this year with movie nighters Kay Plunkett-Hogg and her husband Fred and cook Georgina Hayden in last month's episodes. And Gil Mella is coming up next week. So this week, meet Deborah Robertson, who's a bit of a lifestyle guru with advice on everything from 
marriage to clutter and how to feed your dogs. Dogs very important. <laughs> well, I started out as a food writer, and I'm still a food writer, but I think that lots of people who are interested in food are interested in everything else as well. So, you know, it's quite unusual to find somebody who loves to cook but doesn't love to be in their house and make it as beautiful and calm and fantastic as it can be or doesn't like to garden a little bit, even if it's just growing a few herbs. So I sort of knitted everything together and cobbled a career out of the things I really love to do do anyway which is be in my house and feed people whether they've got two legs or four legs now i'm fascinated by your dogs your Mm. your book on dogs i want to know how to feed my dogs in the way that i feed my friends because i have three dogs and i just don't i mean i have to say they're incredibly healthy very ancient and very healthy but i know i'm probably doing absolutely the wrong thing well if they're very ancient and very healthy you're probably doing exactly the right thing when we got our first dog about 12 years ago Eventually I started to cook for him a little bit and I slightly did it on the sly in case everybody thought I was insane. And I developed these sort of meals I could make for the dog which were slightly like the things that we might eat, just not seasoned, no salt, no pepper. So I could roughly make a meal for us at the same time as I was cooking for the dogs. And I just made sure they have at least... I've got two dogs now, so they have at least 70 to 80% meat in their diet. And the rest I just have, you know, really healthy fruit and vegetables and grains. My puppy... Fruit? Yeah, my puppy loves fruit. She's not a puppy, really. She's 18 months, but I call her a puppy because she's an idiot. Uh, but her favourite thing on earth is to chase frozen blueberries across the kitchen floor. Mm-hmm. And she loves bananas, all those things. So they're, they're really good for them. Extraordinary. I, I mean, I know friends of mine who, who give their dogs carrots to chew on. Yeah. Do you do that? Yeah, she loves a carrot and a bit of broccoli. And she loves, they both love pumpkin or squash which is really really good because it's very soothing for their digestion so if ever they have a slightly upset stomach that's I, i put some squash in with their dinner and it really seems to help so i started out doing that wrote about it a little bit in that slightly coming out as somebody who cooks for her dog way thinking um you know people would think i was insane and i got loads of tweets and emails from people saying oh yeah I cook for my dog too I'm so pleased I'm not alone so I've got these lovely group of people now who will tweet me about what they're feeding their dogs tonight it's very sweet my confession is that actually I always cook more than we need and so our dogs eat what we eat yeah planned overs but I think it's going the way when I was growing up all of our dogs used to eat scraps from the table and nod meaty bone and the rest of it it was quite and they all seem to live forever And also, they didn't get lots of the skin complaints and other allergy type of complaints that some dogs get now. Because once you... I don't want to slag off big dog food, but um, the dog food industry, some of the food is full of fillers and all kinds of things that... Once you are interested in what you're eating yourself, it's only a small extension to think about what your dogs are eating. So now you've sorted out our dogs, Mm. what's next? Well... I have just finished writing a cookbook for cats, <laughs> because of course, but this is the end of my pet uh, n- nourishment writing, I think. I don't think I'll enter into the sort of small rodent category. Um, so that, and just more lovely writing for Lovely Delicious about things that um, get me excited every month, or cross every month, or things I think about food and food trends and... Um, modern manners, all that sort of thing. 
TV chef James Martin has been around a bit. He grew up on a pig farm, learned his trade in the kitchens of Marco Pierre White and Nicola Danis before becoming a bit of a TV favourite on Saturday Kitchen. Now he's introducing us to our own green and pleasant land in his TV series and book, James Martin's Great British Adventure. He told me it's an idea that's been simmering for quite some time. I read about this chap in, in the Orkney Islands. Um, it can't, it got to be 18 years ago and I read about this chap and I read about the produce of the Orkney Islands and, and particularly this one place called North Ronaldsey, which is you fly to Orkney, call mainland, and then you fly on from there. And um, this guy was the lighthouse keeper, he was the fireman, he was a bit of everything, but he was fundamentally a farmer, producing lamb. And it's the, the longest man-made sheep dike in, in the world. Um, and it was made by the lead on the island at the time. There's 50 people that live on this island, there's two pubs. It's the only island where you can drive with no MOT, no tax on your car, because there's no garage, there's no police. There's no, you know, It's just a tiny island in the middle of the sea. Yeah. But it produces the best lamb you'll ever taste in your yeah. life. Yeah. End of. And and you can say the same about the the scallops that you find. The, no, the... you can say that about anything. The Longestines, where you are, Strangford Lock, where I visited before in Ireland, uh, the best gin we've ever tasted in Wales. Yeah. I mean, the list can go on and on yeah. and on. And really, take me yeah. through one recipe that really speaks to you. Which one would you choose? Well, I mean, there's lots in there you can pick from. A chicken Kiev, for instance. You know, I had that when I was a young kid. It's the you know, it's fundamental. To, to British food in terms of what it is now. It was the first dish that was invented to go out commercially. So um, a supermarket put it out there. It was M&S that put it out there as their first convenience food. Yeah. It was in the 70s. It was hugely popular in the 70s in the days of the Bernie-ins and that sort of stuff. But if you look back in history, it's, it's got a history of obviously Russia and that kind of stuff. The first celebrity chef, Karem, was the one that really brought it to Europe. He was a chef for Napoleon. He was a chef for the king, in, uh, George, at the time. Um, so he was really the guy that put that kind of food and brought it to the UK. And why does it speak to you particularly? I mean, you've been in food a very long time. You started off at Harvey's and Nico's yeah, yeah. and all that stuff. But it's got great ingredients. You know, it's it's simple, simple, simple cooking. You can cheat and wrap it in parma ham, but that ain't Kiev. And it's my, my experience in terms of cooking. My mother cooked it. My grandmother cooked it. But also that you look at the modern sort of things now where you, you get more and more in terms of the history of food. You look at the Isle of Wight with the garlic. While we're on the Isle of Wight, they produce them because they've got great pasture, because they've got the more microclimate. They've got amazing uh, uh, creamery there that produces the best halloumi you'll ever taste in your life, the best feta you'll ever taste. People think it comes from Cyprus. It does, but you will not taste a finer halloumi and feta cheese than what's produced in the UK from the Isle of Wight. Really? And butter, that I've never tasted as good butter that before. So we, we, we kind of made this sort of dish up in when we were in Wales and, and obviously leeks and stuff like that. And, and and I just I didn't want to look at British food. I didn't want to bring out another British food and go, well, here's fish and chips, here's another pie, here's another thing. Here's, yeah. Everything's brown, everything's... What is British food? Yeah. So you know, it's colourful, it's tasty. It's, it's a bit it's... of everything. It's bolty. It's a bit that was invented in the UK. It's a bit of everything. Yeah. What is British food now? Yeah. And that's what makes it about exciting. You still got to look in the past, but also you've got to look forward. It's a guide to the best of Britain. Where would you go back to? One place. The Orkney Islands, without a shadow of a doubt. I would, I would buy a place in the Orkney Islands tomorrow. Um, it's a very, very special place that that is untouched. Um, great people. Um, uh, great stories great produce that's not really changed it's just it's just great simple cooking you know i mean we had a crab sandwich the, the day before we were about to film and i've never tasted crab like i genuinely haven't yeah. um but what a beautiful part of the world because people look at the stones and look at stonehenge 
you see all the islands, they've got those just around the corner. I mean, it's just spectacular. Now, 30 metres under the streets of Clapham, in the tunnels used in World War II as air raid shelters, it's not the most obvious place to find the world's first sustainable urban farm. But here, among the hydroponically and LED-grown microgreens, I met Richard Ballard of Growing Underground in his very noisy working farm, and he told me how he first dreamed his dream. I moved to London back in 2009 to do a film degree, which is something I really wanted to do when I was younger. Um, and from that film degree, this idea evolved. Like uh, a lot of people, when they come to the capital, they're fascinated with what's going on underneath, their, underneath the streets. Yeah. Crossrail was being built at the time. and um, Digging up all sorts of stories. Exactly, yeah. And this was really interesting. So I looked at this for an idea for a film. And then um, my final thesis, I did a film about the future cities and how we're going to feed and power future cities with a statistics coming out from the United Nations saying that there will be a trend of 80% of us will live in cities in the next 30 years uh, and then in the next 20 to 30 years you're going to have an extra 2 billion people on the planet so mm. these cities how are going to feed everyone exactly so um, this really interested me so I looked at how we're going to feed and power um, future cities and, and I, I focus really on the power side of it because this came from a guy called Jeremy Rifkin who's um, uh, a, a fascinating character because he's an economist as well as being an activist and a, a sustainability um, sort of guru. And he came up with the concept of the third industrial revolution, which um, he now uh, advises heads of state in Europe, Angela Merkel and people like that, to um, implement the third industrial revolution principles into cities in, in Europe. Which is and, all about carbon neutral. Yeah, it's about every building that be, that's built and any new building or existing buildings, converting them into energy plants where you have photovoltaics on the roof, um, uh, your rubbish being converted back into um, to, to fuel through uh, and, um, um, and also vertical wind on the side, yeah. feeding into smart grids and then those smart grids using that energy really efficiently. And the more and more people that come on board with that and, and feed into those grids, you get an abundance of energy. So this is an idea that lots of people could pursue really, I mean if they're entrepreneurial, lateral enough and committed enough. Exactly, yeah. Finding what, what other spaces are available for growing. Because effectively what you've done here is you've got polytunnel conditions but just underground. Exactly, yeah. So when we launched this on a crowdfunding website back in 2014, we were, we've been offered spaces from salt mines to uh, um, ex-nuclear bun bunkers. There is a, a phenomenal amount of space underground in, uh, all over the world, but also it doesn't necessarily have to be underground. Controlled environment agriculture is, is definitely on the increase, and this could be done in a warehouse, yeah. uh, it could be done on the back of a distribution center for a supermarket, and enable, you know, to reduce food miles that way. The supermarkets already have the distribution set up, and, uh, and you could be producing on the back of, of, of uh, distribution centers as well. It is a film set. I mean, you have basically produced film in my head. That is what the future looks like, isn't it? People growing things, creating things in really places that we've never even looked before, that we're always running <coughs> our noses. Well, the benefit to doing it in this environment is that we are obviously reducing food miles. New Covent Garden Market, which is the central hub in London for distributing food, is less than a mile down the road. Um, we're reducing pollution from transport coming into the capital um, and, um, and giving our customers a longer shelf life. Um, due to the products that we grow added somewhere like Egypt or Israel. Um, so that has a time uh, allocated to that. So we're cutting that out of the, the equation. So giving our customers a longer shelf life and in turn that reduces food waste. I mean, I'm standing here thinking about all the people who you know, sheltered from air raids. Could they even have imagined that such an extraordinary 
future would be right here for them in London? We, we actually had a, um, a, a lady get in touch with us when we first uh, came out with this story um, who's local and she's 94 years old, I think. And she stayed here during the, um, during the war. And she said it was a really uh, terrible environment. And she said, she, it was a friend of hers actually that wrote to us to say that, um, you know, it's so good seeing this space being used as something positive. And what's quite bizarre about that is that in the war, you would have had bunk beds of, which is protecting Londoners. Now we have the equivalent of bunk beds, but, uh, but growing uh, food to feed Londoners. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plushcare. Plushcare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Now, it may not seem right now that we are the most tolerant society in Europe, but the plethora of ethnic food across the UK tells a very different tale. Stories on our plate, or soup, was founded in 2016 as a response to the mass migration the previous year across Europe, largely from Syria and the Middle East. It's a social enterprise that celebrates people and their culinary identities through supper clubs and an anthology of recipes by refugees like Mandana Moghada. She told me why cooking food from home is so important. I wanted to teach people through food what Iranian culture is about. I'm in no way political. Although we came to this country, my father got political asylum, so I did escape the troubles in Iran as a child when I was uh, 16. But um, I think food and eating is something we all do and it's something that everyone can sh- connect with that by everyone in their kitchen have a chopping board and they have to cook and, and they can share this, this way of uh, communication together. To, to understand my culture through food. And the food I choose um, to cook um, is not because it's a simple way for people to follow, it's because there's a story behind it. This is my New Year food, so this is how Iranians celebrate New Year, this is how Iranians do Easter, this is how Iranians do the longest night of the year. So they're connecting with the celebrations, culture. Also, I know an Iranian woman who does this thing, and she's, you know, we can talk to her, and she's a human being, and she eats like this, and this is what her family is like. And they then want to 
may hopefully take that to their own home in their own kitchen and copy the same thing and often it stimulates them to talk about their culture to me often they will say oh my god my grandmother does the same biscuits for we haven't done this for years and it just triggers those memories and suddenly we are friends suddenly we are communicating because of this plate of food and to me is really a plate of love because I have worked a lot on that piece of food that's in front of people and telling them that I care about sharing my stories with you. I think it's a very rich culture, Iranian culture, but um, not much Iranian food is known out there. It's mostly mixed with, um, mistaken with Arabic food or Lebanese food. or So Iranian identity wasn't really recognized as much. Yeah. I was just often... Um, uh, disappointed with people's ignorance that like when they came across p- uh, Iranian cooking lessons they thought oh my god we're going to see a lot of spices and chilies and kind of and, and, and um, little they knew that ar- Iranian food, Persian food is all about aromatic things like um, the, your, your uh, cupboard would be the essential things would be rose water rose petal, cardamom Saffron being the main thing is like salt in our kitchen. Without saffron, Iranians will die. And, and uh, everything is very slow cooked in Iranian food. It's not difficult, but you've got to give it patience and time. And the aroma starts from 11 o'clock in the morning in the house until lunch is ready. So nothing is a quick fix. Um, you've got to give it time to create that. Um, give it patience and time to create a good dish. The aroma will have to evaporate in the house and take over, and that delicious food comes out in the end. Slow-cooked and delicious. It's almost a whole year since I was at the announcement of the 2018 Jane Grigson Trust Award for New Food and Drink Writers, and its winner, Angela Clutton, has just published her debut book, The Vinegar Cupboard. I met her on publication day in her spiritual home of Borough Market, where she runs its cookbook club, to find out how she feels. Uh, kind of beyond excited it is um, a very strange thing when you've been working on a book for a long time and then it comes to life and it's my first so it is like people keep saying to me it must be like giving birth and I don't have kids but I'm guessing it it feels like that because it's the whole mixture of things the anticipation for so long with it lots of other people who've been involved as well on the way but it is you know essentially mine it, it's 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 incredible it's an incredible feeling and people have been so supportive as well on the way yes and of course you won yes. the jane grigson trust yes. award for new writer new yes. food writer yes. this time last year yeah yep, exactly, right, exactly right now that gave you some money two thousand pounds yep. to go and do the research what did you do with it in some ways the biggest thing it gave wasn't actually the money the money was brilliant two thousand pounds no one's gonna you know mine that and I did use it really well but actually the most important thing it gave was a little bit of a lift for me at a very important time in the writing process um, it really helped the publisher get some welly behind it you know it's a massive because thing you were up against Sky McAlpine oh and Norshee Spenkaboo amazing I mean, big amazing women amazing writers and I think especially when you're doing your first book you know anything that can help you you know give it a little bit of oomph it's amazing and the Jane Grigson Trust was a huge part of that the money obviously was absolutely great as well because it really liberated some research and liberated some writing time I took myself away and I had a little you know, cottage down in Rye for a little while to finish the books I just really needed a change of scene and I went places to do research with it and it was, it was a big help because the book is full of stories of people who have made vinegar over the years you know, over the generations yeah, I mean what yeah. a rich wonderful history you've chanced upon it is 
phenomenal. The breadth of vinegar right around the world. You know, we're talking about Africa, we're talking about the Americas, we're talking about India and Australia and all across Europe. You know, it is so widespread. And then historically also like thousands of years. So there are so many wonderful stories to tell. I mean, for example, Modena. We all know what balsamic yeah. vinegar yeah. is. Or do we? I'm not sure we do. And I think there's a real romance of the word. And I think there's a lack of understanding behind that. And I think there's... I'm very much of a feeling that all balsamics have their place. You've just got to know what they're for and what they're good for. And if you get a really expensive one, don't waste it in the base of a dish. And if you have one that's not that expensive, you know, don't use it as your finishing touch. You know, you've got to understand what the different things are. And actually understanding how some recipes have been passed down for generation on generation on generation gives you a sense of understanding. Just explain the grape must just explain that process um the grape must is what you get when you press the grape so it's everything it's not just the juice it's the skin and the seeds and everything that comes out of it and that's the the very heart of traditionale balsamic and that is then fermented into alcohol and then fermented into vinegar over years and years and years and you have the iconic images of the barrels getting smaller and smaller because the wood allows some bit to evaporate off the wood gives the wood takes and so it just, you know, uh, evaporates and thickens and becomes this wonderful, uh, unctuous fabulousness. That's what, why we've all fallen in love with balsamic over the years. Exactly, exactly. Now, I was very taken with the idea of, I don't use vinegars in roasts. Oh, I know. Shocker. <laughs> there may be some other people who don't. Maybe one. Tell me you your top tip. You're losing it out. I, I know that totally now. losing it out. read the recipes. <laughs> Give us your top tip with vinegars in roast. I use vinegar for roasting probably more than anything else, actually, because if you're doing it for a roast meat, it helps break down the joint a little bit, so it tenderises as well. Especially good if you're doing something like a brisket. Maybe there's a brisket recipe in the book. It's really good for that kind that of... Cool. That kind of... It's really, it's brilliant. Um, I use it for roasting fruits. I use it for roasting vegetables. Really good for roasting vegetables. Because, again, you've got that lovely balance of sweetness with the lovely depth of the umami. And it really kind of brings everything together. Yeah, absolutely. And last but not least are the health benefits of vinegar, yep. of course. Now, yep. being an osteoarthritis sufferer oh, myself, I do take the side of vinegar. You, okay, but yeah. you should take it as a little tonic. Yes, exactly. Now I've been slugging it. Yep. And you say don't do that because it's too acidic. <laughs> what should I be doing? The old pipes, don't you? Know? <laughs> okay, so I'm quite exhilarating okay, in the morning. Okay, yeah. But but, but it, it is. That is a serious thing. It's very exhilarating. Um, and it's very detoxifying. But it is it's very good for a little kind of morning after thing if you need a little kind of because you take a little take a little nip of it and it does like really kind of you know sort you out a little bit. Um, but it's best taken as a tonic, diluted down. People swear by it for um, arthritis because of the anti-inflammatory pro- properties. Prebiotic, there's people, athletes are taking it to help with muscle cramps because the lactic acid, it helps kind of break things down. There are so many benefits. And you know, I'm going for thousands of years. We have ancient Chinese manuscripts, ancient Islamic manuscripts that are talking about using it for jaundice, you know, for all kinds of things. It is absolutely embedded in natural medicine. And I should add that the jury is still out on the science behind those anecdotal claims. And finally, Sophie from the Delicious Food Team gives her top tip of the month on how to make a restaurant-style pizza. Yeah, so it's really easy and actually at home you manage to get a really super crisp base and really lovely puffed-up crust. So what we do is you have uh, get the frying pan as hot as you can and then you put your pizza in, really carefully spread it around so you get a nice layer around the outside and then just put it under a really super hot grill and you get a really lovely kind of like restaurant-style pizza as if it's in a pizza oven with lovely charred bits and, um, yeah, just like super airy light crust as well. Thanks for listening to the Delicious Podcast with me, Jilly Smith. 
I'll be back next week with River Cottage chef and delicious magazine columnist Gil Meller, who's taking me to a wild beach to cook over an open fire. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.